Oh, maybe it's on my end. Mahesh, I was telling, I was telling the guys I got my ass to my dad's office today to record this just because it's more stable internet. Right. I was like, I can't, I can't have Mahesh roast me again as being the DY guy and still having shitty internet connection. You're literally like, the that, fucking. That, that you one, are that one the hit deepest too deep. guy. You are the deepest guy. You're sitting yeah. here chilling all these fucking projects 24/7. Can't even get stable internet, motherfucker. <laughs> Oh, it's it's tough out here. No, man. it's okay. It's Verizon and T-Mobile know who you are, and they're coming after you. They're specifically throttling your internet because they know you're. <laughs> they're trying to shut us down, yeah, bro. This is how they come after you. While this we is report. how it begins. Oh man, it's it's starting. Ariel, you there? Oh, there he is. There he is, with that fresh shave. Yeah, Looking good. Looking good. So did I. Yeah, man. <laughs> Let's go. How's it going? I'm well. How are you guys? We're excited, man. So, Ariel, before you jumped in, I was just telling Connor and Steve a story about my dash cam S. So, the first time I got it set up, the bolt wasn't fully tightened. And so, like, as I'm driving, I just slowly start to see the dash cam, like, rotate over and just point directly at me. And I just started like laughing my ass off because I imagined some type of like auditor going through and just seeing like street footage. And then all of a sudden, just like me, um, like just driving my car. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. No, we see some weird shit. I mean, a lot of also people <laughs> leave like um, they're like, a, you know, to take a baseball hat or like some other like, you know, piece of clothing and they put on the dashboard and then we, it shows up in the imagery. Uh, so there's, you see like a lot of weird stuff. We're getting better about like, you know, removing that type of stuff. But yeah, in the early days, it was kind of like, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. What's like the weirdest thing that you think you've seen um, going through some of this dash cam imagery? Uh, we saw people having sex in San Francisco. <laughs> oh, my Lord. That's wild. <laughs> Scarred for life. <laughs> Extra honey points for them. Extra <laughs> tokens to them. You could see, I, you could like it was, they were, their faces were blurred out. Um, Thank God. But you could see, like they were assuming the position, and yeah, that was kind of like uh, we're now in the process of blurring out entire bodies. Um, so we wouldn't be able to see that now. But yeah, in the beginning, it was like, oh man. There you go. Sam. Damn it! I knew I knew I had my dash cam pointed in the wrong direction. Fuck! <laughs> oh <laughs> uh, yeah, Mahesh, he he missed the T-shirt throwing on it. Yeah, it didn't land exactly on top of the dash cam. Oh. All right. Well, like, pri like, like privacy is like a big, big issue, right? Like, people don't understand like how. I mean, there's like Google Street View, right? There's like entire websites dedicated to like you know discovering weird stuff on Google Street View. Um, and so like, it is a big issue and I think we've gotten better about it, not just like hype mapper, but the entire industry as a whole. Um, but if you, if you don't like design for it up front, you're going to catch your, you're, you're going to find yourself in a really bad situation. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's probably one of the biggest questions or the most common questions people ask too, before purchasing this dash cam is related to privacy. 100%. So. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think it's and then it really depends also, like, it's very cultural as well. Like, there are certain cultures and um, countries where either people are, like, you know, very, very privacy sensitive or there's laws that are very privacy centric. Um, so you kind of have that dimension as well. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I've been around mapping long enough. So I like, we knew a lot of these issues to, you know, from the get go. And I think actually crypto helps in this regard, right? Because it's like very anonymized, like people expect it to be anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tell people like in our discord community and on social, like, we, so we generate this three word username. It's anonymous. It's, you know, we don't want people creating their own username, but unfortunately, like some people do share that username um, on, on social media and on discord. And we try to like, you know, encourage people not to do that. That's their yeah. lack of OPSEC, right? I mean, yeah. Not your fault. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we, like some of the names are actually quite like cute. Uh, and maybe we should have come up with like more boring names. <laughs> has anybody got their name tattooed on themselves yet? No, but somebody has a, um, a Hive Mapper logo tattooed on themselves. Okay. That's bold. That's, and it's not you, right? No, it's not me. Okay. Uh, it's a contributor in Europe. Gotcha. So, I think somebody like paid them. Um, I don't remember. It was like 3,000 honey or 5,000 honey. It wasn't even that. It wasn't even a ton. Um, Connor, I'll give you 5,000 honey right now oh, to get my tattooed on your ass. <laughs> we'll see. That could be generational wealth in the future. So, Yeah. So it was kind of, it was funny. Like, yeah, somebody did it. And, and like, they did it, I think like on their thigh or something like that. And they took pictures of it. And I was like, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we continue to dive into Hive Mapper, I want to zoom out a little bit and understand like what Deepin means to you. So let's take a scenario where you run into someone off the street who's not that familiar with crypto and has no idea about Deepin. How do you go about describing the concept of Deepin and what it kind of embodies? Yeah. Um, to me, it's about a collective effort, right? Uh, so how do you build products and services that people use every single day, but do it in a way where there's a collective effort by people all over the world kind of coming together on a single platform to build that product and service? And so, you know, I think HiveMapper embodies that, obviously, in the sense of, you know, by definition, HiveMapper is decentralized, right? Like maps, you have to have many, many, many people all over the world kind of coming together in order to create anything of value. Um, I do realize that, like, not every single deep-in project has this geographical or GPS sensitivity that we have. Um, but for us, it's, it's very, very critical, right? It, and sometimes it even comes down to an intersection, right? Like if you have something like Helium, they're obviously also geographically sensitive. And I'm not like, I don't want to, you know, I'm not a telecom uh, expert, but in general, from what I understand, it's more of like, hey, you need, you know, nodes in let's call it, you know, two mile radius or three mile radius. Uh, in some cases, you know, maybe 10, whatever. In our case, it's like, no, you need to see that intersection and you oftentimes need to see that intersection from multiple angles in order to actually build a great map of that specific location. Ariel, I think my my next question would be around your experience. So you've got very applicable experience. You spent some time at Yahoo Maps and also Search and then co-founded Gigwalk, which from my understanding was almost like a, a deep in before deep in. Basically, you were kind of aggregating contributors uh, around the world. I think there was one or 2 million of them you got up to. There was an app 
and companies and brands could kind of submit like requests for tasks, uh, whether it was like yep. mystery shopping or retail auditing or whatever it was. Um, I'm sure those were both pretty formative experiences, especially co-founding a company in Gigwalk. Um, <clears throat> something I've been thinking about is like the split between spending time thinking about what to do, you know, as a, as a CEO and, and spent the, the amount of time you spend actually going out and doing that, those things. So I'm curious how your management style, you know, looks right now and how it's evolved, uh, from your time at both Yahoo and, and Gigwalk. Um, so look, I, I had a good time at Yahoo. I really like the, the people that were around me were incredible, still friendly with a lot of those people, incredibly talented people as well. You know, Jeff Weiner, who was, you know, that ran that division then went off and ran LinkedIn. So, you know, learned a lot from kind of that team and that management structure for sure. I probably stayed a little bit too long. Uh, like, I, you know, for me at least like that wasn't my dream you know, to kind of grow in the ranks there. I, I realize for a lot of people that is, that's not like my personality. Uh, it's not where I fit in, in the world. Um, and so, yeah, once I, I jumped over to Gigwalk, um, you know, Gigwalk, the learning there really, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about management style, but for, for focus first on the learning was it wasn't passive enough, right? So in other words, like these people were walking around with an iPhone app or an Android app, which at the time, this is like 2011, 2010, and given the scale that we had achieved was like amazing, right? But from a business model perspective, it like required real work, you know, and active work by these contributors who were like walking around collecting this data, taking photos and so forth. So that was issue number one, which was like, if you're gonna build something and it's gonna scale, then it has to be incredibly passive for the contributor. Lesson number two, was that it had to um, it had to be something that like you own the actual data asset, right? So in Gigwalk, the business model was, you know, company would hire us, and then we were basically a service provider, and they owned all the data. And by the way, the data was different, right? Like what this organization wanted was different than what this organization wanted, and so that just made it incredibly hard to build up a data asset that you could then monetize you know, many times over and over. So uh, I think in retrospect, I've obviously didn't have the business like financial, I had a lot of product chops, right? I knew how to build product. I knew how to scale product, obviously, but then starting to build that muscle from like a bit, how do you build a great business model, right? How do you build like great go to market? How do you then build like great sales and marketing and all that other type of stuff? Um, and do that from zero to one because at Yahoo, like you don't, as a, I was director of product there, you don't touch that stuff, right? You're right. so far disconnected from that kind of stuff. And so Gigwalk really was that formative experience that allowed me to learn how to actually like, okay, it's not just about product and engineering. Obviously that's where it starts, but at a certain point you got to transition to actually get real customers, real demand, real revenue into the system. And so when I started HiveMapper, like I already had all that experience, obviously, and I had some of those scars as well, but HiveMapper was not an instant success. Like we went through many trials and kind of, you know, dark alleys and, you know, wandering around the desert to kind of figure out, okay, what is the actual recipe here that's going to work and that's going to scale on a global level? Gotcha. Well, I mean, that, that makes a ton of sense. So you kind of maybe got your product chops 
at Yahoo Maps and Search got a lot of kind of mapping specific you know, big tech experience. And then at Gigwalk, uh, cut your teeth in terms of go to market and just, you know, being a co-founder, leading a company. Um, I'm curious to talk, I wanted to talk a bit about Hive Mapper specifically now. So, you know, you've got a really good background at, at Yahoo Maps, you know, obviously Google Maps is a, another large competitor, Apple Maps. Like, What's what's wrong with centralized mapping today? Like, what, you know, why why are you building Hive Mapper? Um, why is a map that's refreshed more often valuable to the world? Yeah. So centralized mapping is very expensive, right? Like, even for you know companies like Google who have a ton of cash, it is just incredibly incredibly expensive. So there's really kind of there's been historically two approaches. So you have one approach like something like OpenStreetMap. Um, which is, you know, volunteers effectively um, manually editing a map um, directly in kind of this interface sitting at their desk, right? So that, that's been historically one approach. And then people take that data and then, you know, use it in a variety of ways. Um, Mapbox actually uses OpenStreetMap underneath the hood. Um, Snapchat, I believe, does as well. And then you have the centralized approach, which has historically been, you know, Google. And so... The issue with that obviously is cost. The issue with OpenStreetMap on the other side is that the quality bar and the freshness is very low, right? And so what does that mean? That means is the number of use cases that you can actually use that data for is, is fairly low. Um, and so what you, the trick is, is how do you build something that is crowdsourced, right? While maintaining the quality bar. And so, if you don't maintain the quality bar, then you have something that is kind of valuable, but not super valuable. Um, and it's not really valuable for the what I would refer to as the most valuable use cases, which is around navigation, right? And that's gonna become more and more important over the years as you introduce things like robo-taxis and those scale and as more and more ADAS. ADAS is basically advanced driver systems. So these would be like systems that are in cars that are on the higher end and they can basically take over driving in certain scenarios. Uh, but not all scenarios, like all of those systems require incredibly fresh, high quality maps. And that's where really OpenStreetMap falls short. Um, and the other side, you have Google, which is, you know, from a quality perspective, quite good, but they're lacking in freshness. And it's just so incredibly hot. It, it's so incredibly costly to actually go out in there and build that. Gotcha. I mean, so it sounds like there's there's some use cases that necessitate more frequently refreshed data, but there's probably also some that just like haven't come to market yet because, you know, there really aren't many maps that are refreshed as often as Hive Mapper could be, you know, once a week, yeah. once a day, even multiple times a day. Like, do you, do you have any ideas of like emerging use cases or use cases that you think could, could be made possible with a map that's refreshed as often as Hive Mapper? Well, I think every, like across the board, people are saying to us, you know, even if historically, like, you know, you talk to somebody like at Pepsi on the logistics side, right? They're looking for fresher maps today, right? Like nobody says to me like, hey, I want a stale map. <laughs> and so to them, it's just kind of like, yes, if you can do something that is fresh, that is not crazy expensive, or I should say fresher, we're very interested, right? So even for existing customers and existing use cases, you know, people say like, sure, like if you have something that's fresher, I'm, I'm interested. 
Um, so that's the existing, you know, customer group and the existing uh, set of uh, set of use cases. And now what you're seeing is a whole new set. So if you kind of just brought it out here for a second, probably in, important to explain, you really have two customer groups. The one is the existing ones, which are companies like logistics, right? So this would be the Ubers of the world, the FedExes of the world, um, the Amazons of the world, et cetera. And even supply chain companies, you know, like, like Tesla, uh, they rely and they pay for maps, right? I know for a fact that like one of the larger ride sharing companies, not named Uber, not named Lyft, spends, you know, on the order of 25 to $35 million per year on Google Maps APIs, okay? And so what are they doing there? They're doing like routing, they're doing ETAs, they're doing all that kind of stuff. Then there's another customer group where the end consumer is not a human being, right? All, all of the existing use cases today, the end customer is a human being in terms of utilizing that data. Whereas in the robo-taxi world, as well as in the advanced driver system world, maps are a key input into that capability. And there the car is the one that is actually utilizing the map data, right? And so there's a machine that is actually making decisions based upon the freshness of the data, or I should say the map data as a whole. And the freshness is obviously critical. So if you have, you know, you're going down a highway in an ADAS, you know, product that Ford has or GM has or BMW has, and then that all of a sudden there's a construction zone and you're, you're, the map is expecting three lanes, but now it's only down to one lane, you got a problem, right? And so it will just disengage, obviously, and ask the driver to take over. But it does, if you actually knew where the construction was, where it started, where it ended, not only would you be able to then disengage faster, right, or earlier, right, maybe you'd actually be able to navigate around that without asking the driver to disengage. And then a robo-taxi scenario, that even becomes more complicated because in addition to being able to determine where the construction is, what its impact is on, on the robo-taxi, now you need to know, okay, when is that gone? But if you're navigating around that construction zone, you're not going to see that again. And so these services rely on HiveMapper to then notify them not only of the presence of construction, but when that construction is now gone. Ariel, have the centralized companies that have these map products been focusing on increasing their freshness or have they just like, has their staleness just been consistent? Like, are they prioritizing? Do they understand the problem that exists with these stale maps and have they been working towards improving the freshness? It's a good question. Yes and no um, is the short version. I think there, the question is, is like, you know, you have this sunk cost in, in Google's case, Google Street View cars, you know, um, and they probably have a couple thousand of them. And so the, the issue is, how do you get away from that, right? And I think they've experimented with a whole bunch of different approaches to say, okay, how do we see a location more frequently and move beyond just the Google's review car? But there is kind of institutional inertia as well as kind of this sunk cost fallacy that kind of just continuously pulls them back into this. So you've seen them experiment over the years with different approaches, but it doesn't seem like anything is actually stuck in any meaningful kind of way. Um, you know, and some of them are now coming to us, right. And saying, okay, look, how do we start, how do we leverage this network that you guys have built? You guys have reached scale. This is now interesting to us. 
um, and so potentially leveraging Hive Mapper to kind of supplement what they already have. Yeah, I think just like <clears throat> fundamentally, structurally, it's, it's difficult for like a Google Maps to, to to pull any levers to see a road as often as Hive Mapper might, just because you guys are global and open and permissionless, and and anyone can kind of contribute to this this map. You don't have to send a very expensive mapping car out there yeah. and, and pay for the labor and everything. Um, digging in a, a bit more on like the Hive Mapper protocol and what you all are looking to incentivize, like you know, what what would you say the Hive Mapper, Hive Mapper protocol wants from contributors in terms of like actions and then how does it incentivize those actions to happen like should one kilometer equal one kilometer anywhere in the world in terms of the value that that kilometer represents to the protocol or are different kilometers worth you know different amounts of value to the protocol and therefore should be rewarded in different ways Ah, you're stepping into the, uh, in, in, onto the, uh, <laughs> very controversial topic. <laughs> um, all right. So yeah. So when people, a lot of people come into Hive Mapper and say, and expect in many ways that, Hey, if I'm driving in some random town in Iowa, I should earn the, and I drive whatever 10 kilometers. I should earn the exact same amount as somebody driving in Los Angeles or London or Lisbon. And the truth is, that's not the way it works at all. Um, and so the way it works is that every kilometer you drive, depending upon where you're driving, right, um, and even what kind of road you're driving, right, highway versus, art, you know, major arterial road versus residential roads, those will all pay differently. And the reason is, is because you're trying to build a complete map, Right. And guess what? A lot of people drive on highways, right? A lot of people drive on Broadway in Manhattan. And so if you're paying, you know, the exact same amount, so like, let's say all four of us drove up and down Broadway. Well, we've, we just saw it like 10 minutes ago. Do we really need to see it again? And so should we waste, you know, rewarding people for that? That doesn't make any sense. Um, I mean, if, if you did it that way, then what would people do? People would just attach these things to buses and you would <laughs> earn a tremendous amount, but you would never build a map. And so what you're trying to do is both incentivize people to go, you know, into the residential roads, right? Into other parts of the city, what we refer to as the nooks and crannies of cities um, and kind of get off of just the major highways and the major arterial roads. Um, and so that's why you do have this kind of dynamic reward system that is changing, you know, almost hour by hour all over the world. Um, and then the other thing that we think about is kind of, well, Lisbon, places like Lisbon and London and Los Angeles, I mean, just more people want those maps. There's much more economic activity there than, you know, in some little random city in, in Iowa or Illinois for that matter. And so we, we've, you know, we've said that, okay, those regions are going to earn more than a region in, like I said, a small town in Iowa or something like that. So it, it is a very different than I think a lot of people, you know, maybe came into the project expecting. And it's been interesting to kind of observe within the community. It feels like that the, you know, a lot of the people who are from the U.S. kind of understand that concept. But I think maybe from other parts of the world where there's kind of more of a socialist bent or maybe even a communist bent, I think they, they struggle with that concept a little bit more. Yeah. Or uh, maybe not struggles the right term, but maybe just disagree with it. 
Yeah, I think no, that that makes sense. I, it sounds like maybe it could it could kind of be simplified a bit to like a two or three factor problem. Like one high mapper, the protocol wants to see new roads, right? Like we want to get a view of roads that we haven't gotten a view of before in the past. And then also there's the the factor of like how important is this road to even have a view of, right? If it's like a small dirt road in a small town, probably not as important to to have a view of that that road as the main street in a large city uh, in terms of the kind of economic value to the protocol. Yep. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's good you guys are being thoughtful about the use of, of tokenomics um, and token incentives. It's interesting because the, the value, so let's say you have a region like LA and you get to like 90% coverage or 95% coverage. The, the roads that represent that last 5% are actually incredibly valuable, right? Because you're then you get to 100% and then, you know, once you have 100% coverage, that's obviously a lot more valuable than 95% or even 98%. And so as you get closer and closer to 100, that like, the, you know, the last percentages become more and more valuable. So pulling on that thread, Ariel, in total, HiveMapper has mapped around 6 million unique kilometers, which is estimated to be about 10% of all the world's roads. And this has been done by only using 2% of token emissions for mining. And so what you basically describe is that what has enabled such a low cost of tokens to be spent to acquire that much supply. Is it because most other protocols will just have like this static standard reward mechanism. So is it this more dynamic, nuanced mechanism, which has enabled um, a lower amount of tokens to be minted? And therefore, like now you got now the foundation has much more to use in the future for different incentivizations and whatnot. Yeah. So this is actually a really important point and something I think that, you know, in the deep in court category, like not a lot of people focus on. And look, if you if you basically build a data product or a service, right, and in year one, you find yourself, you know, you've minted and rewarded 10, 15, 20% of your total supply and you have like no revenue on the other side of that. That's a really tough place to be in, right? Um, that's not good for the for the the founding team folks, right? That's not good for the contributors. That's not good for anybody, quite frankly. And so, you know, what we said was, look, we really are doing this based on what we refer to as overall global uh, map progress, right? So as the progress starts to grow, sorry, as the map starts to grow, then we will mint more and more and more and more, right? Um, and so that enabled us to kind of look out over multiple years and start to understand, okay, in year one, here's how much you're going to mint. Year two, how much you're going to mint, and so on and so on. So we did not, we don't use the having effect, right? There's not of this like, hey, in year one, we're going to like mint, you know, a ton, and then it's going to have and so forth. Um, and so by being incredibly efficient, um, I, we think that that's actually beneficial to everybody, right? Because you're actually building something that is truly sustainable, right? It's not like, hey, boom, all of these early contributors got like, you know, a ton um, and then the entire thing is probably going to fall apart. It's no, this thing is actually is now sustainable. So mm -hmm. in our case, you're right. It's, it's, a, it's about 1.8% or something like that, that we've minted and rewarded for about 10% of the global map. 
Um, and, and now we have revenue, right? And so there's real brand name customers using it. And so I think that builds confidence and that shows that you can actually build something that's sustainable over the long term. But yeah. we, I mean, in the, in the community as, as well, we got like a lot of crap about this, right? Um, I mean, understandably so, right? Because it was very different than some of our predecessors. And I'm assuming the fact that mapping is an active effort, or it's more of a passive effort, the expectations of contributors to earn a certain amount is much lower than a network that requires much more active participation, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was fun. It was funny, like somebody like, I don't know, they published this research analyst report, and they said Hive Mapper is like crazy expensive. And their, their rationale, it was very, they said it's very active, and it's very like expensive. And the rationale was you have to buy a car, you have to pay for gas. <laughs> you know, you have to do I was like, I was like, don't do any of that. That's like, the, that's like the, the most asinine thing in the world. And like, we, we tell people like, don't buy a car. Like this person said to me one time, they DM me on discord, like, oh, this is so cool. I'm going to quit my job. I'm just going to map for you guys. I was like, please don't do that. Please do not do that ever. And so, yeah, like, it is, look, if you're driving, um, and especially for those people who drive a lot, like Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and, you know, truck drivers and stuff like that, I mean, this is a no-brainer for them, right? Um, I do tell people, I said, look, if you're only driving, you know, if, you, if all you ever do is go to the grocery store and pick up coffee, you know, a couple times a week, this probably isn't for you. Um, but in my case, I drive, you know, I commute to work. And then, you know, on weekends, I got stuff going on. So for me, it makes sense, right? Um, so it really depends on kind of like what you are and, and how much you drive that it determines whether or not this is a great project for you. On the driver side, we have another part that you can contribute and you don't have to drive at all. You could basically just be training our map AI system uh, by doing these reviews and games that we have online. Yeah, well, if I knew that I didn't have to go out and buy a new car, that would have saved me a lot more money, man. <laughs> but um, we will talk about the the map AI later on. But before we jump into that, I want to talk about the revenue that you mentioned. So recently, Hive Mapper Inc. has begun licensing data on behalf of paying customers. And so, could you walk through like what type of customer is paying for this data and what they're using it for? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of different categories of customers. So there's, uh, autonomous vehicles, ADAS type customers in that group. So ADAS being advanced driver systems, uh, there's logistic companies, uh, and then there's, you know, other mapping companies as well. So those are kind of like the three types of customers that today, uh, are representative of the customers that we have, uh, in terms of use cases. Um, so I'm going to start with like the near real time, right? So that would be like the ADAS and the robo taxis. And so what they're looking for is, you know, hey, there's a thousand locations in this region or 2000 regions in this location that we're tracking. Something's going on here that we're concerned about that are having impact on our ADAS systems and, and or our robo taxi systems. And we need to be like monitoring them very, very, very carefully, right? Um, so that that's like, and, and what I say, like very carefully, like sometimes two, three, four or five times a week, they want to see exactly what's going on there, right? Whether it be construction zone or, you know, new turn signal was installed or new stop sign or new speed limit. And we also alert them of some of these things as well. 
um, in the and and the, that's also true on the logistics side as well, right? They're they're making all these different deliveries, and they're having issues at various locations throughout the city or throughout the region, and they want to be tracking these locations, right? Because time is money in their case, and so we give them the tools plus the imagery plus some of the map features data to kind of help them understand what's going around at all these different locations so that we can help them reduce their ETAs. ETAs to them are really, really critical. Um, and delivery times are really, really critical. That, that, that's how they run their business. Uh, and then the other case is mapping companies, we're effectively supplementing some of the collections that we're, they're, they're doing. So in some cases they say, hey, look, we don't have coverage here or the coverage is really old or you know we don't want to like take our expensive cars and drive them to all these different locations and you guys are more cost effective uh we're just going to use you so we're seeing more and more of that quite frankly and so that that's an exciting part of like people starting to believe that like no this actually works and it works at scale and the quality bar is really high because a lot of the other you know maplery was another service that kind of preceded us they used iphone and android devices and the issue with that is there's, there's a couple issues with that, but from a data perspective, you're dealing with imagery of all these different sizes, all these different resolutions. For the customers, they hate that, right? Um, and in our case, it's all standardized, right? Every image that you get, regardless of which dash cam, is very, very standardized. It's a very high quality imagery as well that's kind of optimized for the mapping use case. And then the other issue with, with iPhone and Android devices is the positional accuracy. Right, the GPS or the GNSS, more more technically correct, that is inside of an iPhone or Android device is just not what is relevant or what you would expect for mapping purposes. Um, and we spend a lot of time on that in, in order to continue to improve positioning. And there's all these different scenarios all over the world where it's really, really tough, and it's a really tough problem unless you have like a dedicated hardware device that is optimizing for that. Yeah, I think this is a, a good time to talk about like a bit more on, on dedicated hardware versus the kind of trend that some of us have been seeing of Deepin's launching, really just using like the smartphone uh, and its suite of sensors as their hardware, you know, lowering the barrier to entry for contributors and then having some kind of like mobile app on that device. Um, I think it, it obviously depends on like the project's goal and the use case, like whether that's, that's even possible. So when I mean, you talked about kind of standardized high quality imagery um, as one of the main reasons why like dedicated hardware is very necessary for HiveMapper. But um, just curious if you could expand a bit on that, like Natix is a competitor. There's a couple other, I would say deep in competitors that are using smartphones instead. Like, do you think, you know, edge compute on smartphones and AI models can kind of smooth those images, make it workable? Do you think they're, looking to build their projects toward kind of a different end goal than HiveMapper? Like, yeah, just curious your your perspective on on the dedicated hardware versus not yeah. for mapping. Well, we, we tried the iPhone and Android device before we tried hardware, right? We're like, so we went through a couple of different iterations, right? We tried iPhone and Android device, uh, and then we're like, okay, this doesn't really work. Uh, you know, we have some data to to share with you in terms of why it didn't work. And then we tried a third-party dash cam and the third-party dash cams worked a little bit better, right, in terms of people were not churning out as quickly, 
but what we needed was better positioning, right, of those devices. And then we also needed really, really robust APIs so that we could offload all the data from the device. The dash cam hardware manufacturers that we talked to said, look, unless you're going to buy from us, like, you know, 100,000 devices, we're not going to prioritize your requirements, right? I mean, I, I would do the same thing if I were them. Um, their, their use cases and their requirements were not necessarily aligned with what we wanted in terms of turning a dash cam into a mapping device. Um, in terms of the iPhone Android, what, you know, our experience with it was, you know, I, I shared with you, obviously, from a data product perspective, what the issues are. But from a contributor perspective, there was a couple of really critical things, right? With a dash cam, when you just turn on your car, that thing starts to map, right? Like there's no buttons that you need to press. There's no like, oh, I got to fidget with my car, you know, thing, put it here, put it there, whatever. It's just like, it's there. And like you turn the car on and it just starts to do its thing for you, right? And most people, like when they get in and out of their car, they don't want to sit there being like, okay, I got to align it. Okay, what am I doing? You know, like mount it properly. And then I got to tap buttons and all that kind of stuff. And so what we started to see was with the iPhone and the Android, the, the churn was just incredibly high, right? People would do it. And then, you know, human beings are human beings and we're all lazy. And when you want to go to the grocery store, you want to meet up with a friend for dinner, like the last thing you want to do <laughs> is start like messing around with this phone. And so like, the per, there were two issues. What, one was the percentage, let's say somebody drove for 500 kilometers in a week. We probably only got like 10% of that at best, right? Because they, were, they weren't using it on every single drive because of the issues that I just described. And then after three or four months, they would just churn out entirely. Um, and a lot of people would say like, look, I don't want to like mess with this device. You know, my, this is my iPhone. This is my Android device, you know, um, I don't want to have to like mount it properly every single time. And I also want it like accessible to me, right? So if it's mounted very close to the window, it's not very accessible to me. I want to listen to music. I want to take calls. I want it to like map my navigation, you know, map my route, not doing this other thing. The third thing that we saw was especially like in places like Arizona, warmer parts of the world, uh, it would just overheat very quickly. So like, you know, literally you would, you know, maybe drive for 20, 30 minutes in this, you know, in Phoenix in the middle of the summer and then boom, it would just overheat. And so, you know, people got frustrated, like shit, now I can't use my phone at all for like the next half hour or whatever it is. Um, and so we actually intentionally, when we built this device, we, we drove around Arizona, we mounted it on exterior mount. We drove around Arizona in, you know, 105, 110 degrees and we never had an issue. Um, and, th and there are people to this day who like are, you know, have external mounts with a high mapper dash cam, you know, drive in very, very, very hot parts of the world and experience no issues. So, um, I mean, if anything, like I want to double down more on hardware side, you know, like build better, more seamless, you know, et cetera, than go in the opposite direction. And this is after a lot of pain and suffering related to the hardware side, Right and a lot of money that we spent on it as well. But like every, all the metrics point to us and all the experience that we hear from contributors is like, this is, this is so much better. And we're now averaging, our average driver does 600 kilometers per week. That's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's wild. I mean, you've probably got some, some, 
some power users in there and power contributors. And I guess that's, that's what you'd want to see, right? Is the people that are driving the most, like whether it's for their job or for some other reason, you want them to be you know, contributing and, and have low train, like to stick with, with the network. Yeah. I, I think that's like an, another I mean, thing I, that I mean, there, there was a, v, there was a VC that passed on us uh, because they said like, Oh, you guys have to do hardware. We don't want to do it. And they just said like, you, you, we just doubt, like they just like literally sent me an email. Like you're doing hardware. We don't believe you'll be able to ship these devices. You know, this will probably fail. I mean, they didn't say probably fail, but it was kind of like, you know, I can read between the lines. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I saw this tweet that was like building a crypto project is already hard enough, but if you add in a hardware aspect to it, it becomes like 10 times harder. And so like any founder willing to take that on must be crazy, but, um, it definitely makes sense. Everything you described and why you need a dedicated hardware device makes complete sense to me. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, the, they were both hard. The high, so we have two models, the high mapper dash cam, which is kind of the base model, low, slightly lower cost. Um, it's like 270 now. And then we have a higher uh, priced one, the S model with like more features, fancier, better form factor. I mean, just kind of really quickly is kind of crazy story. So that one was even, even though it was, it came after the high mapper dash cam. Um, and even though it has a lot more onboard compute, et cetera, that one was much harder to build. Um, and actually one of the people that we were working with, it was not, you know, uh, in our company, it was like a third party company that we we're working with the guy who started the company died I mean, very tragically died in the middle of the project. And so just like made the entire thing, like, I mean, we almost shelled that project. We were like, you know, geez, we already have the high mapper dash cam. This thing is working. Do we just shell the S and return money to all those people who put in the pre-orders? And we're like, no, that's, that's not us. Like we're, you know, we, we thought it was a really important device to build. And we made this, you know, promise to those people who, you know, put a, put faith in us that we were going to deliver. So we're like, you know, screw it. We're going to deliver this thing. Yeah. I, I really respect that. Shifting away now from like the dash cam conversation and towards the map AI. So yeah. really like HiveMapper's primary objective is to develop this advanced AI map making engine, right? That's capable of producing uh, very fresh maps and high quality data at the same time. And so to achieve this, you guys have developed this map AI, which is like the brains of the network while the dash cams are more of the eyes of the network. And so the map AI, my understanding is it does these object detection, classification, and positioning to actually put it on like a 2D or 3D map that we're all used to looking at. And so I'd love to hear you talk about, you know, just basically elaborate on the training process. Um, I know you guys have built these like games to make it easy for contributors to help train the AI model, but I'd love to hear you just um, riff on it for a bit. Yeah. I think you did a pretty good job of summarizing it there, but I'll, yeah, I'll definitely add a little bit to that. So, yeah, I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that HiveMapper is just, you know, images. Uh, images are the raw material that then enable us to go and build the map, right? So in order to map something, you effectively have to see it. Um, you know, whether it's a, in the olden days, it was like literally human beings would see it and then they would, you know, literally write down, okay, you know, there's a row here, this is the intersection, here's the name of the street. Now we have cameras that can actually serve the purposes, as you said, as the eyes. But then once you have that imagery, 
then you need to actually extract out all the relevant objects, right? So imagine you're driving down the road, you see a 25 mile per hour speed limit sign, you see a no turn, no right hand turn sign, you see, and it says between these hours, right, between four and 6 p.m., Monday through Friday, you know, you identify that the right two lanes are for going straight, there's a, a third lane for making a left hand turn. All of those little bits of information need to actually ultimately be added to the map. The hard part is less about classification, you know, being able to determine this is a 25 mile per hour speed limit sign. That that's hardish, but that is not really the hard part of the problem. The hard part of the problem is properly positioning the signs, right? Or properly positioning all the objects for that matter. So for example, if you place a no turn, no left-hand turn restriction, in the wrong place, that means something very different. Um, you have to place that sign, you know, precisely within like roughly half a meter to a meter for it to actually bear the correct meaning, right? The same thing for a stop sign. If you put in the wrong intersection or if you put in the wrong, facing the wrong direction, right? Like if you think it's facing south, but it's actually face, it's actually facing, you know, let's say southeast. Well, it's now applying to the wrong drive path. Um, so positioning and direction is the really, really hard part about this. And so the way that it works is that there's all these different games, right? And so we can see internally where we are potentially falling short or where we need more training data. And then there's all these map AI contributors. Uh, we call them trainers and they play these games. Some of them are fun. Some of them are less fun. Um, and so it would basically be like, hey, we think this 35 mile per hour speed limit sign is located here. Tell us whether or not that is correct, right? We think this is a no left-hand turn restriction between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m., Monday through Friday. Tell us whether or not that's correct. And so if it's not correct, then they actually correct it for us. And so that is then improving the system to learn from all of these reviews that, okay, you know, here's how you actually get better at positioning. Here's how you actually get better at classification, right? Um, and that, I think we launched it in Q1 of this year, and we're up to about 75 or 85 million reviews in, in total. And what we're seeing now is that the community is bifurcating. There are some people who like the easy, fast games, and they're just doing them on their phones. And there are some people who like the like slightly more complicated, more challenging games. You know, some of them are kind of like GeoGuessr. You know, you're like, okay, I got to place this object in the right place. You know, okay, what am I? I'm a little bit of a detective work, right? Mm -hmm. And so those are a little bit more challenging. And so they're best suited for people who are sitting behind a computer. And they probably are best suited for people who kind of already like maps uh, because they are a little bit more challenging. But you also earn a little bit more for them. So that's a, that's a, you know, there is some overlap between the drivers. Uh, like we find that truck drivers in between breaks play these games. Um, but there is another community that is kind of more, you know, in places like the Philippines or Pakistan or Indonesia that have really kind of coalesced around that. So it's a little bit of a different community. Yeah, like why would I play Candy Crush on my phone if I can open up the Hive Mapper app and earn a few honey just by playing some easy games? But so some of my friends, their kids do it. Wow, <laughs> so they're using. Isn't that yeah? That that sounds a little unethical. Using their kids to generate money for them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Who would ever do that? Who would yeah. ever do that? <laughs> so, if I understand correctly, 
there, there are two products that HiveMapper offers. You have the, the Map Imagery API and then the Map Features API. So the Map Features API is a result of all this, of the Map AI, right? Like it's interpreting, for example, how many street sign, how many stop signs there are within this, you know, five mile radius and providing that to a customer. Is that correct? That's correct. There's another product that we just launched, uh, and this is called Scout, and this is effectively location monitoring at scale. Um, and so it is a kind of a combination of like these really great tools. So basically the use case is customer wants to monitor a thousand locations, right? They're looking for construction zones or they're looking for, you know, actually one in one case, there's a billboard ads. They want to verify that their, their ads went up properly across all these different billboards all across the United States. Um, so there, so Scout is that toolkit that customers use to very, very quickly monitor and manage the monitoring of thousands of locations all over the world, um, or maybe even just in, in one specific region. That consumes both the map image API data as well, in some, as well as in some cases the map features, right? And so it's just an easier way to use those underlying APIs and it makes those API data much more accessible to more customers. Makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. And some customers, like the hard part about this, I think we, we always talk about this internally is like, okay, you have this data and you have these API data products, you know, integrating these into people's enterprises is what really creates long-term value, right? So if you just look at your typical sales processes, okay, who are you guys? Okay, do you have scale? Thumbs up, right? Do you have privacy? You know, check, 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 check. Yep, yep, you guys are good from a privacy perspective. Okay, let's now do a data valuation project, okay? Is your data actually high quality across all these different regions? Okay, great, great, great. Now we enter into a commercial relationship and we do that integration work. That is what makes it, you know, that long-term value because then it's like, okay, I mean, we had a customer who spent, you know, uh, I, I won't share the exact amount of revenue, but it was, you know, let's call it five figure revenue. It was working. They came back and they did uh, a six figure deal with us and then integrated everything. And then boom, you know, eight weeks later, they did another six figure deal unless they had done all that valuable integration work, right, to like actually hook this into all of their internal systems, you know, they wouldn't have been able to consume that much and then they wouldn't come back for another deal. So, you know, long-term value here is really created by like integrating all these pipes and hooking all of our pipes into their pipes. Yeah, slowly then all at once, uh, especially makes sense, I think, on the enterprise level of, of larger companies that need to test things out before they really... They, they really dive in, but that's awesome to hear about all the, the traction in terms of real revenue. I think that's, that's fantastic. I think last question from us would just be, it's been a cra pretty crazy cycle, both the, the bowl of 2020 and 2021 when Helium really took off and I think put, put their foot down and really established the category of Deepin all the way through the, to the bottom, you know, a few months ago. And now it looks like maybe we're starting to come out of it a bit. So it's, it's been a pretty crazy cycle. You've led HiveMapper to a ton of success throughout that entire time. You know, what's you know a lesson or two that you might have for a first-time Deepin founder who sees some value in a token incentivized model and you know wants to build something in the real world today? 
Yeah, no, look, Helium is like, I, I always refer to Amir, um, you know, he's the CEO and co-founder of Helium as the George Washington of, uh, of the deep end category. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, just amazing what they did. Um, but yeah, to me, I think it's starting with, this is maybe a little bit different than how a lot of other folks look at it, but start with demand. What I'm seeing right now is there's too many projects that say, we're going to start with supply, go crazy on the supply side. And then it's just like grow supply for the sake of growth. And they don't have a great understanding of how they're actually going to monetize that data or that service. Uh, and that's, that's obviously a very scary place to be. And so I think if you start with demand, then you know what the customer wants. And then you're building your supply to satisfy that demand, right? Both from a technical perspective, from a coverage perspective, you know, from a, maybe even a regulatory perspective, you're working towards actually delivering something for that customer group that you know precisely how that customer is going to go use it. And I think we do need to get away from, you know, rewarding projects for supply. Like, I think supply is important. Don't get me wrong. But like at the end of the day, this deep end won't grow to be where I think it should grow to unless there's real customers really using these products um, all over the world for, you know, really critical use cases um, and, and ultimately driving revenue as well. And I'd like to see more focus on that part than the supply. I mean, it, you know, when Helium grew and this was, it, it kind of grew a little bit way beyond their expectations probably because of that bull market run. Um, and I think the industry as a whole, not the Helium team, but the industry as a whole learned in some cases the wrong things from that. And so I think we're kind of like shifting back and saying, wait, 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 let's get back to basics here. And let's really focus on the things that matters ultimately, which is like customers and demand and all that kind of stuff. Because that's ultimately what drives it, right? I mean, like you can have, you know, I don't know, a million Twitter followers and like a Discord community with half a million people, but if you don't have real usage, it just it just won't matter. Yeah, D deep in founders, don't forget about demand and a focus on demand. Uh, with that, Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a really really great conversation. It's been good to catch up. Uh, with you and about Hive Mapper and all the success you guys have had recently, um, where should we point our listeners to find you on the internet, find out more about Hive Mapper, to get involved? Yeah, well, well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. It's fun. Always love talking to people who actually like know the details and want to get down to that level. Um, yeah, so you can follow Hive Mapper. Uh, we're on Twitter, so uh, follow us there. We're pretty active there. If you want to dive deeper into the community, we have a Discord um, that you can you can poke around in, learn a lot more, ask from kind of some of the older hardcore members. Some many of the people are you know have fleets of maybe 20, 30, 40 different dash cams, so you know they know a lot more, quite frankly in terms of the ins and outs of this than I do even at this point, which is cool. Um, so, and then I'm on Twitter as well. You can find me. I, I talk a lot about maps and mapping geeky stuff. Ma geek, geeky mapping stuff. <laughs>